still live in Park Slope. You work in advertising and your wife is a compliance officer at some company. You send your kid to an independent day school and you donate to Obama and you're a NIMBY who doesn't want new development in your neighborhood. That's the kind of person you become. That is a lifestyle that's the envy of 99.9999% of the human species. Hello and welcome to Learning Machine, a podcast about education in the 21st century. I'm Nathan Levin and I'm here with my compatriot and co-host Sam Squalachi. The voice you just heard was Freddie DeBoer, a writer, thinker, and practitioner in the field of education. On today's episode, we will be asking the question, does education even work? And unpacking an essay on the topic written by DeBoer, a little foreshadowing, his article is called, Education Doesn't Work. As a reminder, we have linked the article we're discussing today in the show notes. It's certainly not required reading, but if you don't mind a bit of homework, you may find it interesting to read it through before listening. Sam, have you heard this term before? NIMBY? NIMBY, right. Not in my backyard. It's kind of like the idea that people want to improve society unless those improvements start creeping in and changing their own status quo, right? Exactly. Um, And I actually had never heard this term before, so I had to look this up. But essentially what Freddie's talking about is this sort of upper crust or new age privilege in the United States, which, you know, supposedly the, the education system is preparing students toward. So let me ask you this then, do you feel that education works? And, you know, maybe before we actually ask that, I want to ask you like this broader question that our podcast is really hoping to address, which is what is the purpose of education to you? Right. I mean, is it a place to prep young people for college and career? Is it just like a national daycare system? Is it an economic tool that's supposed to lift people into the middle class? Until we know or define that, it's really hard to say whether or not it's working. If you ask a group of people, you're going to get a variety of answers to this question. But many people would point to the last idea you mentioned, which is that education is a lever for achieving economic mobility. And as a society, we have tied economic mobility directly to educational mobility. If we as a society believe that equality is a good thing, then we also believe that it's good to create mechanisms which contribute to increasing equality. And more often than not, education is put forth as the primary lever we have to achieve this equality. But this is the question, right? I mean, what does the data say? Is education actually moving that lever? Well, what Freddie is saying in his essay is that education doesn't work as a mechanism for creating equality. In fact, historically, it's an institution that was built to do the exact opposite. And so today, the entire basis for believing that schools can create equality is flawed. Support and inspiration for Learning Machine comes from our listeners. If you've got a minute and want to let us know what you think of our work, visit our website at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Stay with us. There was a constant and chronic misunderstanding and confusion between uh, when we are assessing absolute ability and when we're assessing relative ability. So for the listeners, absolute ability, my kid doesn't know the name of the 50 state capitals. I send him to school for a week and then he's memorized the list of the 50 state capitals. That's absolute learning. He has gained knowledge or ability that he didn't have before. But then I take that kid and I send him to the spelling bee. At the spelling bee, he is in context, in context with other students who can also spell. 
And we're, even though it's accessing his absolute learning and absolute knowledge of spelling, what we're trying to determine is who is better than who at spelling. And these are obviously related, but they're also distinct. And they also have clear differences in terms of how you sort of want to address that. Unfortunately, in many or most uh, educational contexts, teachers are expected to evaluate both uh, without very clear expectations about when you're doing what. This concept of absolute versus relative learning is directly related to the forms of assessments we use in the classroom and in places like college admissions and state standardized testing. Freddie goes on to describe the difference between what's called criterion referencing and what's called norm referencing, which are two groups or a way to group assessments that we use for different purposes. In assessment theory, this is sometimes referred to as criterion referencing and norm referencing. So criterion referencing is just like, like a driving test. You go, you take a driving test and the instructor has, or the, the, the test guy has a sheet and on that sheet has a list of skills that you need to be able to demonstrate that you can do like parallel park or whatever, merge in, in traffic, whatever. If you can do those, he checks it off. And if you get enough of those check marks, then you get your license. Um, there's no norming. There's no curving. We would certainly not want, um, you know, there to be a normal distribution, right? We wouldn't want a very large portion of people taking their driver's tests, not getting their license. We would consider that to be socially undesirable. So that's just pure criterion referencing. Are you demonstrating the skill that you're, you're demonstrating? Norm referencing is like the SAT where they work very hard at and they're very good at getting a normal distribution of scores. So, um, you know, for, for your audience, the famous bell curve uh, is, uh, you know, in a normal distribution, the vast majority of the observations of, of how people do the scores are clustered in the middle, right near the average, the mean. And then as you move farther from the average, the number of people scoring that way gets lower and lower. And in fact, that that sort of reduction in the number of people as you move uh, far away from the, the mean is quantitatively predictable, which is what makes inferential statistics possible. One of the things that strikes me is that as a classroom teacher who's been in the classroom for eight years, teachers are not encouraged to make this distinction between norm referencing and criterion referencing in their own classrooms and in their own work. But think about it. In each individual classroom, you have teachers that are norm referencing between their students. Every classroom's grade set looks like a normal distribution. If I went to a teacher and said, you should have a class of all A's, a student, every student in your class should have an A, they would tell me I was insane. Because most classes have some students with A's, some students with F's, but most of the students clustered in the middle, as he said, with C's and B's. But if we're trying to create a system that encourages opportunity and gives people the tools to build a better life, shouldn't we be criterion referencing? Should we be saying, did you meet the goal? If you met the goal, then go ahead. Right. And as a teacher, this was one of the things that really created this internal conflict for me. Because I can remember thinking to myself, if I'm doing the absolute best job that I can as a teacher, then I'm teaching every single student in my classroom, whatever it is they're supposed to learn. And they should be able to pass all of my tests with 100%. And so I actually used to say to my students, I would love to give you all A's if you can all you know, achieve 
or understand and demonstrate that you understand this content at the level that earns you an A. Because if you all earn A's, then I feel like I've done a great job. But my administration, the system would not have allowed me to actually give all of my students A's because there's this expectation that students will be distributed normally. Now, I will say that Freddie's argument is that teaching all students up to the same ability level is actually impossible. And trying to do it only results in blaming people for something that's not their fault. Part of the reason why skills that appear to be absolute learning get turned into relative instruments is because if we stick to absolute learning, there's a lot of kids who just are not going to be, are not going to do it. They're not going to learn it. They're going to be on the no side of the binary and we don't know what to do with them. Working in the classroom, it's so easy to see DeBoer's point in action or, or living in our schools, where you have students with so many abilities, so many uh, ideas, so much creativity, such a personality behind them, and they're struggling to achieve at this thing called school. And it's not clear that it's going to help them at all to achieve in this thing called life. And you think there has got to be another option. Couldn't there be another option or another track for these students where they could use their their skills and their tools and be successful like many of them are going to go and be whether or not they're successful in school? But instead, as teachers, we get put in this position where we feel like we have to push them down this single track, math, science, English, history, get good grades, take the test. The problem with all of this is that while absolute learning gains are possible, from the point of view of the system, from 10,000 feet, it is remarkable how little children shift in the relative distribution over the course of their uh, lives as students. As educators, as teachers, as tutors, even as policymakers, most of the things that we've tried really have not had much of an impact in terms of shifting students around in their relative position in schools. Now, at this point, I will say that many teachers, educators, myself included, start to bristle a little bit because the idea that students can't shift in their relative position, that feels like an insult. That feels like um, it almost trivializes the work that we do. And it also is a bit of an affront to this idea of meritocracy that we have in American society. But, you know, if we look into the not-so-distant past, we can actually see that education has only very recently been touted by the great Horace Mann as the great equalizer. We have this system now where our only way to consistently move people into higher-income brackets is through college. It was, for a very long time, the United States had the famous factory at the edge of town that Bruce Springsteen always thinks about. It was the place where you could only have a high school education, but you could go to this factory. uh, You could get a job. You might be in a union. Often you'd be in a union. And you would be able to earn a living where you could own your own home, have a car, put a couple kids through college. This is, in fact, my best friend's dad's life story. He works for Pratt & Whitney in Middletown, which makes jet engines. He was on the assembly room floor, like uh, literally uh, on an assembly line. Now his title is engineer, despite the fact that he only has a high school diploma. 
That absolutely cannot happen now. Sam, the Bruce Springsteen song that he's referring to, or the Bruce Springsteen canon that he's referring to, I can't actually play one of those clips because, frankly, it's not in our budget to play a Bruce Springsteen song. So instead, I decided that I will um, just sing you a lyric that I think gets at what he's describing. And for my 19th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. It's from the uh, the river for your references. It's almost too beautiful. What are you doing on this podcast, Nathan? Please. And so we are fixated on relative metrics because we don't know how to have a society that doesn't have hierarchy. And the way you establish hierarchy now is school. The fig leaf that covers this whole thing is that we pretend that your performance in school is up to you. So that makes the system appear to be to be moral. Oh, you control how well you do in school. So if you didn't do well in school and you end up, you know, um, living on unemployment with a Oxycontin addiction, that's your fault. Which is part of the reason why I always say the most humane way to think about education is to acknowledge that some people have more natural gifts than others. Because if you don't acknowledge that, then you're blaming people for things that aren't their fault. When you hear DeBoer talk about this idea that a person's morality is tied up in how well they do in school, as a teacher, it makes you think of so many students that you've had that have been excellent human beings, excellent people, and who feel like there is some failure because they're not able to achieve in school. And while the values instilled in a school can be really good ones, there are lots of reasons to think that achieving in school is a positive thing. School is hardly the only place where you can achieve in that kind of way. But it is the place that helps to determine the hierarchy. It's the place that gives students the most opportunity. And so if you can't succeed in that arena, it is, it feels like you're completely shut out. And not to mention, is it like the only path to this economic system or to enter society? Every single student is forced into it. We, we have very few options outside of the traditional school system. If you look at I me, mean, we have charter schools, we have public schools, we have private schools. But if you go inside of each of those buildings, and I've been inside many of those buildings, the reality is they are 99% similar. They are all very much teaching the same subjects and preparing students for the same pathway. They all have different ways of preparing students for those pathways. And I think that as a podcast, we're going to get into some of those different ways and start to figure out maybe what is the real, what are the real differences and how to compare and contrast them. But the truth is that none of them are all that different and all of them are expecting you to go to college. Now, of course, I had to ask Freddie, what's the solution, right? He has this argument. He has this standing and this analysis of the system, but at the very least, I wanted to ask him what might school look like if we didn't have to live under the regime of norm referencing. Here's what he had to say. Some kids learn faster. Some kids, you know they're going to get it every time because they're just that bright. They are they're gifted. They enjoy the blessing of the universe. Some kids are going to struggle. If we can acknowledge that, and by looking at the research record, which is enormous, and say, okay, some people are smarter than others, or at the very least, if we want to avoid that talk, some people are better at school than others. And we don't appear to have any way to change that at scale. 
it really seems like we have kids that are distributed a certain way and that's just what whatever god or nature or genes intended that's the way it's going to be so let's make those kids comfortable let's make our schools safe let's not have bottlenecks like organic chemistry or algebra standards that they can't meet the kids who are going to go to MIT are going to flourish in algebra anyway. We don't need to worry about that, right? They're going to take algebra because they want to, because they're nerds, right? Like, we don't need to compel every kid to pass this statewide algebra mandate. We also don't need to, like, do all these crazy manipulations to make sure that we have decent numbers after we do that, right? So I live here in New York. A few years ago, people were bragging because, like, something like 70% of the high school students had passed the had beaten the required score uh, on the regents, which is our big high school standardized test, um, which is impressive kind of until you check the fine print that you only had to get 32% of the questions right to beat the score. So we have these absurd situations like this where we create these strict standards. We can't meet them. So the policy pressure you know, conspires to bring the score that you have to pass down. So the standard doesn't mean anything. All that, all that stuff, it just creates, it, it creates so much angst. It creates so much problems with students. There are kids whose lives are ruined. There are kids who go to high school. Their state says they have to pass this algebra mandate. They fail it once. They stay back. They fail it again. They drop out. And we've lost them forever. And now they're in the gray market economy. That's a completely artificial thing. We can remove that harm tomorrow if we decided to. Instead, like, help kids figure out who they are and what they like, right? Create a, like, uh, an environment that is um, stimulating in a variety of different ways. Present them with information about all the different ways to make it in the world. Stress to them that many different kinds of people with many different kinds of abilities find their niche and flourish, even if that's not in a traditional academic setting. Keep them safe, keep them fed. Uh, universal free lunch for everybody. After school programs so that the kids don't have to go home if there's nobody there. These sort of things, these quality of life improvements are immensely important to kids' actual lived experience. Make school pleasant. Of course, we want to stimulate them intellectually. They will be, right? We're, we're still going to make them read, right? That's, that's not the point. The, the idea is that, like, you make them read, but you don't have to have – every kid doesn't have to have, like, this score on the state exam for reading because if they can read sufficiently to live the life that they want to live, that's good enough. So that, that has to be the purpose of all of this. And the just the fear that is expressed at this sort of idea is – but you're reducing rigor, so you're not going to get excellence, right? Well, it's true we're not going to get excellence out of our median student. Our median student, by definition, can't give us excellence because the median is not excellent. Most students are, by definition, not going to be excellent. I cannot tell you how many times you encounter in the literature, like, we need to make every, every kid a star. If everyone was a star, the term star would have no meaning. We don't need that. Of course, the reality is that with any statistic, and Freddie in his article does have substantial data to support his argument, but with any statistical data, it's dangerous to apply the findings to any individual, dangerous and false to apply it to any individual. There will always be anecdotal evidence to support the claim that education works. There will always be students that come out of their shell and blossom. There will also be students, unfortunately, that 
trend downward and have something traumatic that happens in their lives that causes them to perform less well. But that's not really the takeaway here. Freddie DeBoer opens his argument by admitting that the title of his essay, Education Doesn't Work, is a bit of a troll. What the article is actually pointing out is that education does work. It does exactly what it was intended to do. The question we have to ask ourselves is not whether education works, but who does it work for? And where does that work leave us as a society? Our guest today was Freddie DeBoer. Among many other things, Freddie is a prolific and accomplished writer. And I encourage you to check out more of his work at freddiedeboer.substack.com. That's Freddie, F-R-E-D-D-I-E, DeBoer, D-E-B-O-E-R.substack.com. Before we sign off, we have two things to ask of you, dear listener. First, visit our website at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. That's where you can learn more about us and we can learn more about you. Nathan and I are a two-man team and we aim to improve. So any and all feedback you can give us is much appreciated and will be implemented post-haste. The second thing we wanted to ask is if you like the podcast, found it interesting, you think it's the perfect evidence to support you in your most recent debate with a friend, please share this podcast with one other person. That's how we build our community and connect with more people who might enjoy our content. I'm Sam Scalacci. And I'm Nathan Levin, and this has been Learning Machine. Thanks for listening.